I'm going to get a little Bible quiz for you. So uh, get your brains in gear here. A couple uh, sword drills thrown in here, so uh, see how you do. And uh, some of this is uh, based on, is this the right, Jim? Have I got this right? Am I too loud or is that working okay? Spot on. All right. Some of these have to do with our uh, theme of battle and armor. And uh, let's try this one. How about a sword drill? Let's get your Bibles up. Hold it by the spine. No fingers in the pages. You know, got to keep it nice and clean here. I'll say the reference. You repeat it after me. I'll say charge. And first one to find it, just start reading. Don't wait for me to call on you or anything like that. And uh, we'll do uh, ladies versus gentlemen. See how we do tonight. Okay. Here we go. First one. Psalm 91.4. Charge. There it is. That's one for the gentleman, shield and buckler. And of course, we'll be talking about that. We talked about that shield this morning. Great passage from the Psalms. All right. Uh, question: Who did Joshua meet holding a drawn sword just before the Battle of Jericho? Anybody remember reading that one recently? Hey, what do you? Have? Yeah. It, you know, we don't have a name. That's right. We, it could very well be. How is he described, though? Do you remember how he's describing that passage? Well, I thought it was a mighty warrior of the host of angels. That, that's close enough for me. Commander of the armies of the Lord, yes. And Joshua said, are you for us or against us? And he said, neither. I'm for the army of the Lord. So great. We have one for the ladies and one for the gentlemen now. That was from uh, Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, by the way. Nicely done. All right. Um, what did David do with Goliath's sword after he killed Goliath? <laughs> okay, I think Bing was under the box there just a tad uh, before everybody else, I think, and he, he did. He, he uh, performed his surgery and uh, um, removed his head. And uh, that was with his own sword. That was a great uh, insult to them to have his own Head removed with his own sword. All right, two for the gentlemen, one for the ladies. Um, I want I want a, I want a, an adjective here. Looking for an adjective. Two will be acceptable based upon the passage. But what kind of sword proceeds out of Jesus' mouth? What's that? Two-edged. That is correct. Two-edged. All right. <laughs> Very nice, Kathy. Two-edged or sharp would have also been acceptable based upon uh, the New King James translation. Sharp, and I think some even have sharp, comma, two-edged. So yeah, that's the idea there. That's Revelation 19, 15, when the Lord comes back, and the sharp sword goes out, and he smites the nation. So I think that's two and two now. Two and two. All right, here's a sword drill. Bible's up. Sword's up. All right, good. Looks like lots of people participating tonight. That's good. Here's your reference. Ready? Hebrews 4.12. Charge. And the sin that it easily entangles. For the word of God is a very good sword. <laughs> powerful 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent. I think you had 12-1. That was 412. That's the ladies there. Very nicely done. We had a little echo going over there. All right. That's three to two, as I can, if I'm keeping score correctly, for the ladies in the lead. All right. Here's a question What is the first sword mentioned in the Bible? Sword of the Spirit. Not the sword of the Spirit. Ted? There you go, the flaming or fiery sword in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, carting the way back to the tree of life. Very good, Genesis 3. I think that ties it up now again with the ladies and gentlemen, 3 to 3. All right, I want to name a name for this next question. And this comes from the book of Judges. Whose dagger killed a very fat king? What was that? Ehud is correct. Very good. You even have the Hebrew pronunciation there. Some say Ehud, but yeah, Ehud would be more correct. And he killed Eglon, the king of Moab, in Judges chapter 3. Four to three, ladies in the lead. Sword drill. Here's another one. Ready? Bible's up. Sword's up. 2 Timothy 2.4. Charge. Wow. Uh, We might give a tie on that one. That was pretty close from my ears up here anyway. Uh, Nicely done. Uh, Not being entangled in the battle. Uh, No good soldier would be entangled in the affairs of this life. Otherwise, it keeps him from being a good soldier. All right, so if that's a tie, that should make it five to four now. And uh, here's a question. Who had a difficult time... The first time he ever put on armor. The bu- David. David, right out of there. That's right. Were you thinking about that one a minute ago? You had it there fast. That's from 1 Samuel chapter 17, right before he went out to meet Goliath. All right. Um, that's six to, f- six to four, so I think we can drop it now. That's very good. Not bad. I had nine questions, so that works out. All right. Nice job, ladies. Good job. And uh, we'll do some more of these from time to time. You do a great job with those Bible drills, too. It's good to keep those Bible books in your mind and in order. You can find them quickly without having to look up that index or concordance or uh, directory in the front. Well, let's go to the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to continue with our study on these pieces of armor. This morning's armor was primarily defensive armor that we looked at belt or um, uh, the, the wide protective encircling belt that held the leather uh, protective uh, thongs that would uh, give the soldier the ability to run and agility and give him a, a degree of protection as well. And you talk the breastplate of righteousness uh, generally made of metal by the end of the and the height of the Roman army and their empire, giving great protection to the heart, lung, and liver area, which of course would be mortal to be stabbed there. Uh, we looked at the, um, the shoes 
And uh, one thing that I didn't mention today on those shoes is that the soldiers would often have what, we, what looked like to us as shin guards, especially the officers. Many of the officers would have these uh, metal shin guards. And um, that was considered part of that leg or footwear. And it would give the soldiers some protection in the battle that a, a sword that might glance off and, and not hit a vital part might glance and hit the legs. And those greaves, as they called them, G-R-E-A-V-E-S, would be a part of his uh, issued equipment for his footwear. Not so much helping him walk, but to stay upright if he uh, had a sword hit his legs there. And uh, so we've looked at the shoes, the breastplate, and we've looked at the belt um, that went around, and we looked at the shield of faith, another defensive weapon, not one that was worn so much as carried, and which could protect the whole body. And so that above all, perhaps, uh, alluding to the fact that that shield, when properly used and used in unity with his unit, could protect the entire uh, outfit of the soldier and uh, was very effective in that regard. And if soaked uh, um, or in some way um, given a hard covering would, would not allow the fiery arrows to penetrate and, uh, and catch flame but would actually be quenched through that shield of faith, especially if in it, or the shield if it was uh, covered with water before the battle. Well, let's pick up with verse 17 now. Verse 17 and the Apostle Paul tells us, and uh, through the church of Ephesus, take the helmet of salvation. Now, we looked in that passage this morning at the very end that God put on the helmet of salvation. And uh, it's inspiring to think that God, who needs no armor, would picture himself for us as uh, uh, girding himself with armor to go out and, and fight for his people. That there was no man to stand up and defend them. So he himself took it upon uh, himself, the Lord, the God of creation, our creator and redeemer, to come and fight for us and to put on his uh, weaponry and his armor. And that's an encouraging thing to know that our God uh, desires to fight for his people. And it also is inspiring to us that the very same thing that he did for himself, he asks of us. And so he asks us to do no more than he himself has done in that regard. Uh, I read an article recently in the National Geographic. They did a story on uh, moose. And uh, they were studying their rutting habits and, and the preparation for the, uh, this major event in the, in the life cycle, not only of the moose, but of course the deer and, and caribou and elk. Uh, and they found, of course, that in the, uh, the, the dominance of the fall breeding season always went to the bull moose with the strongest uh, antlers, uh, the strongest body and neck muscles, and the most uh, just the ability to withstand all those uh, challenges uh, by other bull moose. And of course, as we can probably expect, the, the real battle was won long before fall arrived. The real battle was won in the summertime as these moose are able to gorge on the naturally occurring food and to strengthen their bodies and grow these antlers so tall, tall and wide and strong. And uh, of course, the battle goes to the strong in the case of the bull moose. And that the, uh, the, the moose that don't have as good pasturage or, or grazing opportunities, their bodies are not quite as strong uh, to, in, to encounter these, uh, these rutting head-on collisions that, they, that takes place in the fall, they don't uh, end up winning those battles. And uh, I thought that really goes well with our thoughts today, that uh, this idea of 
girding on the truth. It's not something you do at the last second and hope you win the battle. It's got to be something that's a part of our lives every day. Uh, every day thinking, uh, thinking about the Lord and thinking about His Word and spending time in prayer and reading His Word and committing it to our life and, and practicing obeying it on a daily basis. And we build strength over time. It's like we talked about the law of the farm. Is that you can't wait to the last minute for the farmer to just uh, throw the seed in right before frost hits and hope to get a crop. He's got to start way back in the spring and, and go through God's timetable. You know, doing things diligently. The right time, the right thing, and the right way. And, uh, and a lot of this deals with this preparation for the battle. We have to be prepared. It doesn't happen overnight. There has to be some... Uh, growth process. Well, this uh, this helmet that Paul mentions in verse number seventeen, uh, the word simply means circle the head, and that's essentially what a helmet does. Of course, it circles the head, except for the face, so that the uh, wearer can see. The Roman helmets were quite advanced, uh, very uh, wide. Pieces that would protect the ears and yet allow them to be able to hear. Uh, they weren't like uh, earmuffs, but they were extended out a little bit. They had a piece that went back over the neck, and that would protect the neck, of course, from uh, glances by a sword or spear. And, uh, of course, officers would have uh, uh, sometimes feathers or special uh, material on the top to identify them. Soldiers would know who their commanding officers were and where they were and uh, could look to them in the midst of the battle for guidance and direction. So we're told here to take on, take the helmet of salvation. Now, this really goes a lot with what we've talked about earlier about this breastplate of righteousness. We're talking to believers here. So again, we can't expect Paul to be saying that, uh, you know, you, you, you're supposed to be regularly taking on, and these are all present tense verbs, on a regular basis, keep taking on salvation, as if we're supposed to get saved every day, you know, and wake up in the morning and get saved again. Obviously, he's dealing with people who are already saved. They're already believers. So this idea of taking on self, uh, the helmet of salvation does not mean, believers, you've got to get saved. It would be, be redundant to say that kind of thing. But he's telling us uh, to do something, I think, a lot like what we heard about with the breastplate of righteousness. To live and to engage the enemy in, uh, in light of the fact that I have salvation, that the victory has been won, and that uh, my actions have already, in a sense, been determined by what Christ did on the cross. And the success that we can have is based upon the success that Jesus Christ had over Satan on the cross, that the sting of death had been removed, and that the grave was no longer the victor, and that Satan is truly a defeated enemy. We are already saved from the punishment of sin. We are already saved from its power. And so we don't have to uh, wear our helmet as if we were trying to earn salvation or even to keep our salvation. But that that salvation through our faith in Christ is based upon His completed work, not on our performance. And so we can have that eternal security, that hope that no matter... What happens in this life? And no matter what God's plan is uh, in the battles that lie before me, I know that I have a home reserved in heaven for me. I know the final outcome. We have the book of Revelation. We know how it all ends. We know that we are on the winning side. And that's encouraging because not every soldier in every battle in this world can go into a battle knowing that in advance. But we can. We can know that the battle has already been won. 
And yet we continue to battle in not for, not for the uh, get rid, getting rid of the penalty of sin or the power of sin or the, uh, or the uh, power of sin, but we still deal with the presence of sin. It's still here in, in, in our midst. And it's in us. It's in our flesh. We battle with the presence of sin as it continually strives to rise up and um, cause us to doubt and to question uh, and to not trust in the Lord. And so when we take on this helmet of salvation... We are taking on, uh, on a daily basis, reminding of ourselves and living in the great confidence that our salvation is secure and we cannot be plucked out of the hand of the Father uh, any more than Satan could rip one of God's fingers off, you know, if he had fingers. Uh, We're there. We're part of his body and uh, we could not be pulled away from his caring love and protection any more than um, we could remove a finger from his hand. Um, and so that's an encouraging thing to think of. That helmet uh, offered protection. And again, this helmet, as we, as we engage the enemy and false ideas and those who would oppose the gospel, uh, that helmet is our reminder that this salvation is real. And this salvation has been procured for us by the, by the Savior. And uh, we can take confidence in that. Uh, Romans thirteen eleven says, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Paul talking about the fact that that final day will be delivered finally from the presence of sin and we'll be able to enjoy the glories of heaven uh, having been delivered from the penalty, the power, and ultimately the, even the presence of sin in our midst is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Well, the helmet is an important part of the salvation, but up to now all these elements, elements uh, we've looked at are defensive. Uh, and now we're going to look at the, the uh, one offensive weapon and one uh, offensive part of the soldier's life, which is communication through prayer. Let's take a look at the sword of the Spirit in verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now we have the soldier's uh, offensive weapon. Now the soldiers of Rome would often carry spears as well. Uh, uh, those who rode horses would carry the machaira, which would be the long uh, sword of the cavalry, or we might say, or those who rode on horseback. And as they engage the enemy, they need a longer sword to reach down farther to where those uh, necks were. Had to reach down a little bit further to reach them. Uh, but the foot soldier would carry uh, a shorter sword. Uh, the Roman short sword, about 18 inches long or less, and it would have been a double-edged sword, and it would have been very effective in hand-to-hand close combat. Whereas the, the cavalry soldier, you know, he's reaching up from up here, and he's rushing through the crowds, but the footman, the foot soldier, he's down on the ground, hand-to-hand combat, he's got his, uh, his dagger-like sword, and he's fighting with that uh, in close hand-to-hand combat. You know, in many ways, I think of that sword as, as a pertinent Bible verse that we can pull out in the midst of a temptation that is sharp and pointed, you know, in a way like Jesus did when he encountered the Satan in his temptation. And Jesus always responded with a very brief but clear verse of Scripture to counter the temptation of Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's a great little dagger to pull out uh, in the face of our enemy when we're facing temptation. And it's effective. And our Lord Jesus modeled that kind of weaponry and warfare with the enemy, who is our enemy also, in pulling out verses that our Savior uh, not only wrote, 
and inspired uh, authors to write because he's God, but also had committed to memory himself as he was growing up, up in Nazareth. And uh, so we can do that as well. Uh, when we find ourselves in temptation and under the attack of the devil, pull out an appropriate verse that's going to fit that situation. Uh, we might be tempted to lie. Um, uh, speak man, speak every man the truth to his neighbor. Putting away lying would be a great little sword to pull out and to remind ourselves to uh, engage the enemy and not to yield to that temptation. Uh, flee fornication uh, would be a nice short verse to pull out in a moment of temptation. To turn away from that which might lead us down a road that would uh, defile uh, our testimony and, um, and, and fall into immorality. Verses uh, that... Uh, that we struggle with. We know there's going to be battles for us because there are weak spots. We ought to be finding those verses and uh, tucking them away in our heart and in our mind so that when the battle comes, we can pull those out. So the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is an offensive weapon. It is meant to inflict injury. It is meant uh, to help us uh, stand our ground in the face of the enemy because simply standing there is not going to... We have to be able to... Uh, parry swords back with our enemy. And the sword, which is the word of God, is a great way we can do that. Let's look at Matthew 4 for just a second and look at a couple of other examples of our Savior as he used the word of God as a powerful weapon. During our quiz, we looked at Hebrews 4.12 and we looked that the word of God is quick, which means alive, and is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's even sharper than uh, the sharpest of two-edged swords. There's no mightier weapon than the weapon of the Word of God. It is the power to peace, pierce through the spirit and soul and to reach men and women, boys and girls, right where they need to be pierced so that the grace of God, the gospel, can make its way there and bring about salvation. In Matthew 4, we have the account of the temptation of Jesus. And verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written. And they hear Jesus unsheathes the sword in the face of the enemy and quotes the verse, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, we have a second temptation in verses 5 through 7. And uh, the devil took him up into the holy city. There's the city of Jerusalem. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Um, Josephus said that was about 60 feet high. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, Again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Are you surprised that Satan tempted the scriptures? Or, I mean, quoted the scriptures? He knows the word, doesn't he? <clears throat> and he can twist it. And uh, uh, the, the passage, uh, he, he quoted, he left out part of the verse, the angels will give you charge over you to keep you in all your ways. He left that part out to keep you in all your ways because that wouldn't have added any advantage to him. Jesus' way was to trust his Father. And the way that he was supposed to be in uh, was under the, uh, the Father's provision and protection. And so the angels, uh, the, the angels were given charge over us to help us continue obeying God. 
not following Satan and yielding to temptation. So Satan twisted that passage in order to uh, utilize his own uh, evil ends. And, and that's, a, that's a work of the enemy, isn't it? The enemy can counterfeit. He can take arguments, and if we're not well-versed in our, in our, in our Bible, uh, we might have people take the Scriptures and twist it to mean nearly anything they want it to mean. And take verses of Scripture and uh, out of context and interpreted in strange and bizarre ways to justify every kind of evil behavior. And so even Satan uh, can quote uh, the Scriptures. And so Jesus again parries back with the sword, you shall not tempt uh, the Lord your God. Um, not to test, don't put God to the test. For him to have, leaped, to have leapt off of the top of that uh, pinnacle of the temple would have been testing God. And that was not a right thing for Jesus, and it's not right for any of us either. The third temptation, uh, again, the devil took him up into an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. All these quotations, by the way, came from Deuteronomy. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So those angels came uh, and ministered to Jesus because Jesus was obedient. Satan had promised that they would come when he jumped off the temple. And, uh, but Jesus did what was right and the angels came in God's own time and ministered to the Lord Jesus. And so we see the devil left him. The devil left him. The word of God used consistently and effectively at the right time, uh, we find the devil, he has to take his leave. And um, we see a great example there. Now Jesus had been tempted in the wilderness and um, I believe that that uh, that entire time in the wilderness, the, the temptation was going on. Not just uh, maybe a few hours at the very last day. But the tempting was going on all through that time. It was a grueling uh, trial for the Lord Jesus. Uh, but it showed us uh, his great strength and his capacity to be our Savior and to uh, resist temptation. And it also, uh, Hebrews tells us, uh, made him the perfect high priest who not only was able to forgive sins, but understood the power of temptation because he himself had been tempted, though without sin. And so the sword of the Spirit is a powerful weapon. We all have a copy of that sword of the Spirit. And uh, we live in a country where they're available at very reasonable prices, wonderful study Bibles, beautifully bound on, with wonderful India ink and, and fine paper. We are a blessed people to have the Word of God so abundantly. And uh, to turn on the radio and have several stations, we can hear it preached and taught and... Um, and be able to listen to it with numbers of CDs and MP3 programs and, and to just take the Word of God wherever we can. But in spite of all that abundance of the Word of God in our midst, we have to make sure that we don't uh, get to the point where we get so used to it, we don't spend time in it. Because as we know, the more familiar we become with things, sometimes they don't have their same uh, glimmer and, and sheen and uh, glory as perhaps they did earlier. So let's remind ourselves of the preciousness of God's Word and make sure we spend time in it and let God speak to us through His Word. Uh, we don't want to come to the Word of God just to get something so we can fight the enemy. That's not a bad motive. But there's, 
a greater purpose of spending time in God's Word, and that is to, to know God and the power of His resurrection and the, and the glories of Christ, to learn of God, to know God, and to deepen our relationship with Him. That is a powerful thing. And that leads us to this last element of the soldier's armor. Let's go back to Ephesians 6, and that is this element of prayer. I don't believe that the prayer here is meant to be a weapon per se, although it is a powerful ally uh, for the Christian soldier being able to go right to our commander. I believe it's, 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 it's saying that with all the armor that we're, we've been equipped with it, we're wearing it, we're getting skilled in its use, uh, we still have to be in constant communication with our commander. Praying, verse 18, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance for all the saints. And then, of course, he mentions for prayer for himself as well. Paul says, And for me, verse 19, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul knew that though he had Roman soldiers uh, guarding him and protecting him and, and uh, keeping him under uh, arrest, that there was an opportunity there to minister to these people that, need, that needed to hear the gospel. So this idea of prayer, the Christian soldier's supply line, so to speak, uh, to keep that supply line open, to keep that communication line open. The Word of God we have as we read it, God is speaking to us. And in prayer, we return communication to our commander, asking him for help, letting him know of our fears and concerns and bringing them to him like King Hezekiah and just laying it out before him and letting him know this is the problem, this is the crisis. Lord, we, we, we don't know what to do, but we turn to you and do what would bring you great glory. And uh, so this passage is a, is a great verse. It tells us how we should pray and it says always, doesn't it? Praying always. There's this attitude of continual prayer. It uh, doesn't mean that uh, you don't do anything else, but that there's, this, there's always this openness to just go right to God at any moment of the day. Someone's described it as being on the telephone, and uh, you're talking to the Lord, and then you got to go over here, and you just kind of set the phone down. You don't hang up, just kind of set it down, and you go do your thing, and then you come back and you talk to the Lord, and, and in that throughout the day, keeping that line of communication open, uh, whatever you're doing, keeping uh, talking with the Lord. Uh, always. A great word there. Always. We should pray always. Uh, the kinds of prayer he mentions. We talk, he talks there about supplication. Uh, that has the idea of asking for something. And sometimes it even can carry the idea of intercession. Of praying for somebody else who has a need. And perhaps Paul uses that here uh, twice. One's uh, in verse 18, one at the beginning of verse 18 or at the end of verse 18, uh, because he wants them in Ephesus to remember to pray for him as well. Pray for me. I need your prayers and I will continue to pray for you. So the supplication, praying for need to be met in lives of other people, praying for uh, God to come to the aid of those in times of crisis uh, and to meet the need at that moment. And how, in what way should we pray? He says, in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. How do we pray in the Spirit? Uh, we're walking in the Spirit. We're thinking uh, of the Spirit as we live our lives. But one of the things that I 
think Paul points out to us, to walk in the Spirit, as we see it in several passages in the, in the Word of God in the New Testament, is to walk in obedience. To be in the Spirit is to be in harmony with God's plan for our life, to be in obedience and submission to His plan. And so as we pray in the Spirit, I believe the heart of this is to pray in God's will, to pray according to God's plan. Uh, that we come to the Lord with that wonderful phrase that even the Lord used in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, not my will but thine. Lord, this is what we want. We see the need. We pray for you to do this. We pray for you to act for the glory and goodness of your name. But Lord, you know what's needed. And Lord, you do what brings you the glory. And we want your will to be accomplished no matter what. Accomplish what pleases you most. And uh, that, in the spirit, I believe, has to do with that humble, submissive attitude of wanting God's will to be done, not necessarily my will. And I like at the end of verse 18 that he uh, tells us that part of this prayer is for other soldiers fighting with us. The other saints, all the saints, supplication, praying with them, uh, perseverance, not giving up, continuing to pray for all the saints as we engage the enemy. Uh, Not only here in Hermantown, but in all places in the world where God's people reside. And so, I hope this passage has been an encouragement to you and that you have uh, found some encouragement from God's Word to perhaps seek to be more, uh, perhaps better equipped in engaging the enemy and to stand your ground uh, when you are challenged in your faith, to be able to give a defense of your faith um, that would be reasonable and graciously given and given clearly that we would be able to defend what we believe from the Word of God in a concise and clear way that would give people an opportunity to think about uh, what they've heard and perhaps come to know Christ and embrace Him as their Savior. Well, at this time, we want to turn our thoughts to our celebration of the Lord's Supper and uh, ask a gentleman to come at this time and prepare our table.